Hey, Radically Genuine listeners, we have an urgent announcement before we start today's episode. At this pivotal moment, Western societies are entrenched in a profound mental health crisis, partly influenced by how we understand and treat human suffering. Common and expected reactions to stressful events are being pathologized, inaccurately categorized as psychiatric disorders, and haphazardly treated with psychiatric drugs. Alarmingly, Patients are frequently not informed about the potential risks linked to these drugs, and medical misinformation is rampant. This absence of informed consent represents a serious ethical violation, depriving individuals of their fundamental right to make fully informed decisions regarding their mental health care. Industrial deception amplifies the perceived benefits of these drugs while downplaying their well-documented harms. As a result, adverse drug reactions and undiagnosed health conditions are frequently misconstrued as indicators of deteriorating mental health, trapping individuals in a cycle of enduring disability. The pharmaceutical industry has hijacked our collective understanding of mental health, molding medical professionals into legalized drug dealers through their training and influence. Additionally, mental health therapists are widely influenced by industry deception, political ideology, and shifting cultural norms. Who can we rely on for compassionate, ethical, and unbiased mental health care information? Where can we find the accurate resources needed to make informed decisions about our health care? What alternative explanations or treatments may exist? We're embarking on a bold mission to revolutionize mental health care. Our objective is straightforward, to connect individuals and families with ethical health care practitioners who respect your personal values and champion your right to medical freedom and informed consent. Our larger goal is to provide free access to science-based health information, empowering you to make informed decisions. We cannot consent unless we are informed. By fearlessly challenging the established norms of the medical authority, and the psychiatric industry, we're transparently revealing the limitations and potential harms of psychiatric diagnoses and treatments. We're rallying an army of supporters to help us reach our target of $150,000. This investment is pivotal as we will provide the initial funding necessary to launch our online platform and kickstart our programmatic initiatives. Together, we can save and transform lives. I've started the Conscious Clinician Collective, and you can visit theccollective.org to join or to make a donation to this important cause. We need an army of supporters. We must unite. Please join or donate. Visit theccollective.org. The link is in our show summary. In therapy, Radically Genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We will all experience pain. You have and you will. But do you truly understand what pain is? Probably not, because few of us are aware of the overlap between the biological, psychological, and social contributors. On today's podcast, we welcome leading global pain expert and pain psychologist, Dr. Rachel Zofnis, to discuss pain. 
Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFillin. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. McFillin. Also, check out my new website, drmcfillin.com, where you can also access the Radically Genuine Podcast episodes. So, Sean, I don't know, you know, what middle age has done for you, but as I get older, you know, I'm 46 years old now, one of the things that I really appreciate in life is straight talkers. You know, people who are just genuine, clear, they know what they want in life. They have their areas of specialization, expertise, and they're courageous enough to like tell you what they think, even though maybe the world isn't going to understand it in the same exact way. And that's what brought me down this direction to meet an incredible psychologist. I want to introduce our guest for today. Dr. Rachel Zoffness is a leading global pain expert and thought leader, revolutionizing the way we understand and treat pain. She's a pain and health psychologist, assistant clinical professor at UCSF School of Medicine. She lectures at, lectures at Stanford University and is a Mayday Fellow. She's the author of the Pain Management Workbook, a revolutionary treatment guide for healthcare providers and adults living with pain. She also wrote the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens, and this is the first pain workout for that age range. Uh, Dr. Zoffness serves on the Board of Directors of the U.S. Association of the Study of Pain and consults in the development of integrative pain programs around the world. I am honored, Dr. Zoffness, to be able to have you on the Radically Genuine podcast. Thank you for joining us today. I'm honored to be in conversation with you. And what's funny is I also really value straight talkers and I have been following you on Twitter. I've actually said this on Twitter. You're my favorite person to follow, but don't tell anyone that because oh, I'll get so in kind. trouble. Oh, no. I'm not being, con I'm not being <laughs> kind. I I'm actually not being kind. I'm just being straight. Like, Did I'm Sean a pay New you to say that? <laughs> no way. <laughs> I was actually thought no. in the beginning you were going to ask me about my aches and pains being, you know, in our mid 40s now. Well, I, I want to ask her a lot of questions because you are a pain in my ass. <laughs> I don't treat that. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> but one of the things that is, is very clear, I've listened to you on other podcasts, and I'm also a big fan just following you on, on Twitter. Um, you're very passionate. And before we even get into your areas of expertise, because I have tons of questions, and I know our listeners are going to be really interested in this topic, I want to know a little bit more about the person behind the passion. How did you get down? How did you choose this career path in the specialization? Uh, a couple different reasons. The first one, although not the primary reason I chose this field, was that I was a kid with chronic pain. I had chronic stomach aches. I went to a million doctors. Turned out I had social anxiety, as a lot of kids do. And something that parents aren't told, which drives me crazy, is that the number one sign of stress and anxiety in children is headaches and stomach aches. Our system medicalizes that and they are like me and are sent down the medical rabbit hole and lots of procedures and tests and don't even get me started. So that was reason one. But, but reason two was that as an undergrad at Brown, I was just a nerd and I took neuroscience and I learned the neuroscience of pain. And then I did my honors thesis on the gate control theory of pain, which is just explains the science of how pain works. And I was obsessed with it because what I wanted to do professionally, and I couldn't figure out how to do it at the time. I have figured it out now, but I wanted to live at the intersection of medicine and neuroscience and psychology and education and science writing. And that's what I do now, but it's taken me a while to get there. But, but the thing about pain is that no one is going to escape. It's coming for all of us. And it doesn't matter if you're 82 
And it doesn't matter if you have a chronic illness, although of course those people are gonna suffer more. Pain is a ubiquitous human experience. And part of the reason I was fascinated by it is the nerdy part of it, which I'm sure we'll get into, but, but also fear. I've always been scared of pain and, and pain is designed that way. You're supposed to fear pain and it's supposed to change your behavior to protect you. But I have so much less fear of pain now that I understand it. And really what you hear, you say I'm passionate and that's true. I work with teenagers and I work with adults. Um, I am so tired of getting children in pain in my office who have been in bed for four years and they've been on 40 medications and they're still in bed and they're on Medicaid, like no joke, they are on Thorazine, which is, you know, an old school antipsychotic, Thorazine for headaches, let me just tell you. They are on opioids, they're on, they are on 40 medications, gabapentin, which has no evidence of effectiveness for pain. Like, don't, I am tired of over-medicating people with pain. I'm not saying medications are inappropriate and I know we'll talk about that too. There is a time and a place, but that's all we do for pain in our pharma fueled culture. And I'm just tired of it. It's part of the reason again that I follow you because I know we share this perspective that, that medicine is money driven. Yeah, there, there, there's no doubt. Um, I can only imagine in, in this, the culture that we live in being a pain psychologist, which is you know, a specialty that is very, very unique. I mean, it puts you in a small category of people who are going to actually choose that as a, as a, as a specialty in this field, in this general field. But we're in this biological reductionist society. I can only imagine that a lot of people have a, a bit of a resistance to the idea of going to a psychologist for pain. What, what are you saying? It's all in my head. This isn't real every day. I, yeah, it's an uphill battle for me. So back to your question, after I studied pain neuroscience as an undergrad, I went on to get a master's at Columbia in clinical psychology. I did research at NYU. I, I did a bunch of science writing and research. And then I went and got my PhD in psychology. And I went back down the rabbit hole as a postdoctoral student and started studying these non-pharmacological treatments for pain. Um, there, I have some thoughts about the word non-pharmacological, like we're defining the treatment by the thing that it's not, like it's not pharma and <laughs> yeah. that's how we're defining it. Mm -hmm. So people look at non-pharm approaches as almost like pseudoscience and floofy, squishy, uh, but there's mountains of evidence for these treatments that are actual treatments. They're not defined by what they're not. They're defined by what they are. And, and, I also had chronic pain as an adult, an episode of chronic pain that lasted about 10 years and used all this stuff on myself. And I've been using it with patients with great success. And I have these physicians calling me all the time and they're like, what magic pill are you giving to your patients? And I'm like, yeah, kind of, that's kind of the point. Like, I'm, I'm not doing that at all, but you're exactly right. No one wants to see a psychologist for pain, no, no one. Because the message we've gotten throughout our lives is that pain is a purely biomedical problem just to do with anatomy and physiology and that the treatment for that is a pill or a procedure. And that's what we're, that's what we've all been told our whole lives, but it turns out that that's a big lie. That's not actually true at all. So of course, no one wants to see a psychologist for pain because it sounds like what the doctor's saying is it's all in your head. It's just psychological or it's just stress or like people with fibromyalgia are told it's just depression or it's, you know, and it's really stigmatizing and dismissive. So what people haven't been given is the actual science of pain and how pain actually works. So my, my calling in life is to do that. 
Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting because a lot of people would assume it can be invalidating to to go see a, a, a psychologist about about pain. And, and I think the takeaway from reading your book and listening to you on various podcasts is actually you speak to the complexity of pain. And your knowledge base is so wide and, and you're able to integrate so much various science from so many different fields in order to enhance a person's quality of life. And we definitely need to get into the nitty gritty of that today. And I'm interested in it, but I want to just start simple because it sounds silly, but we should have some definition of, of what pain is the best that you can define for us. Oh no, I think about this all the time. And by the way, you read the pain management workbook. I'm so honored. And well, I'm a delighted. nerd too. <laughs> Good. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah, I wrote the pain management workbook to disseminate this information because I do not think pain science and pain treatment should be expensive. And what I do is actually not reimbursed by most insurance companies because like you said, pain psychology, it's unbelievable, but pain psychology is neither popularized nor funded by insurance. So that's why I wrote the book. Um, so pain, let's define what pain is. Pain is the body's warning system. It's your danger detection system and it exists to protect you. Um, so it changes your behavior. If you're running and you break your ankle, pain tells you to stop because as you know, if you run on a broken ankle, bad things will happen to your body. Or if you put your hand on a hot stove and your skin melts off and you don't move your hand away, bad things will happen to your body. And by the way, I learned in neuroscience as a nerdy undergrad, there are people who are born without the ability to feel pain and they do not live very long. So it might sound delightful to not have pain, it does to me, but it turns out pain exists to save your life. Now here's the problem. The pain system can and does fail, like every system in the human body. So just because you have pain does not necessarily mean that you have damage. I'm gonna explain what I mean by that. So we've all been sold this myth that pain is produced by the body, right? So if you have back pain, you logically believe that the thing to do is go to 752 back doctors and have back surgeries until the pain goes away. And a lot of people can tell you that hasn't worked for them. And I'm gonna tell you why. Because pain doesn't live in your back and it doesn't live in your bad knee. That doesn't mean things can't go wrong with the body, of course they can. But pain actually is constructed by the brain, by the brain. The brain produces pain. And I wanna be very clear what I mean when I say this. There's this thing called phantom limb pain. It's a condition that happens sometimes if someone loses a limb in a terrible accident and they continue to have terrible pain in the missing body part. Now, if you can have terrible leg pain in a leg that is no longer attached to your body, that tells us pretty definitively that pain is processed somewhere else and that somewhere else is the brain. Mm. And the funny thing about the brain is that all the parts of the brain talk to each other and of course communicate with the body too. And one of the parts of the brain that processes pain is our limbic system. And you gentlemen, of course, know about the limbic system. Our limbic system is our brain's emotion center. So people say to me, oh, you're a pain psychologist. Do you treat physical pain or emotional pain? And now I just nod my head and I say, yes. Yes, because 100% because of the sensory messages from your body filter through your brain's emotion center before they become the thing that we call pain. Mm. 
And this, this, is known, this has been known in science for many decades. This is not new. This is not revolutionary. That emotions change pain. So if we're anxious or we're depressed or we have a history of trauma, pain will be amplified in the brain because pain is the body's warning system, our danger detection system, and negative emotional states put us in a higher state of alert. So the brain will amplify pain messages. I mean, it's just wild that that nobody talks about this. It's not it's not even taught in medical schools. I cannot figure it out. But that's the that's the down low about what pain is. It is not in your body exclusively. It's made by your brain, of course, working with your body. It's your warning system and it is influenced all the time by thoughts and emotions and context and environment and history. Well, you're speaking to this theory that I remember having high hopes that it was going to be implemented in the healthcare system in the United States. This idea of biopsychosocial model and approaches to health and well-being. What has happened in the United States healthcare system where we've abandoned this? So I, I, I have a tooth. I want to explain what that word means. So biopsychosocial simply means that health, all health and pain, have many, many things that contribute to them. Um, so pain, of course, has biological components like system dysfunction and tissue damage and inflammation, diet, exercise, sleep. Very important. Those are bio components of pain. But what science says is that there are also, and I know people don't like this word, psychological components to pain. And what, let's unpack what that means. There's cognitive components, meaning we all know that attention, which is a cognitive factor, changes the pain we feel. If you're distracted when someone gives you an injection, it hurts less. If you stub your toe when you're on the beach with your friends drinking a Corona, it hurts less than on the day you get fired. So we know that cognitive factors change pain, emotions change pain, which we said, memories change pain. There's a million psychological factors that change pain. And then we said biopsychosocial, the social domain or sociological domain is your environment, social support network, even race and ethnicity, all these different factors. So all together, they create the pain you feel. So they contribute. So your question is, we know, and again, it's not a debate. We know that all health, mental health and physical health, which of course are connected, are all biopsychosocial all the time. We know that during the pandemic, everybody was depressed and anxious. Were we all suddenly mentally ill? No, there was a situational environmental stressor that contributed to how we were feeling. So what has happened is that medicine has been purchased. That is, that is what has happened. Big Pharma has had a huge influence, and anyone will tell you this, Big Pharma has had a huge influence on how pain is treated. One of my favorite books is called Drug Dealer MD by a colleague of mine at Stanford, Anna Lemke, who is not liked by a lot of chronic pain patients because they hear her saying that opioids are toxic and dangerous and they feel understandably threatened because they have been told for decades by their physicians that this is their only option for lowering pain volume. And it actually is heartbreaking. And I do not subscribe to this model where we take opioids away from people who have been on them for decades because as you know, that's really dangerous. Um, but, but we can talk about opioids more later if you want to. But Drug Dealer MD really outlines how pain medicine was purchased by Big Pharma and how all of us healthcare providers across disciplines, but especially medicine, were sold this lie, yeah. again, that, that pain is a purely biological, biomedical problem and requires 
a biological pharmacological solution. And it turns out that it's not true and has never been true. We've been in a recent podcast talking about the power of beliefs and we, we did a episode on the, um, placebo effect. And we were talking about how just beliefs can have enormous impact on, on pain and a lot of psychological conditions. And even when you evaluate the decades of research studies with antidepressants, you can't really distinguish the, the drug from the placebo group other than the placebo group's going to be a lot healthier. And I, I, there's a story, you know, with my son, I was telling, he, he was a wrestler and there was a, a practice where he comes over and says, dad, my, my knee hurt. It, my knee's hurting. I said, ah, you know, suck it up. You're fine. Go, go through the practice, right? He goes through this entire practice just wrestling normally. It turns out he ripped his kneecap off, tore his retinaculum. So like the, the idea that he wasn't hurt or the belief that he wasn't injured impacted him to such a degree that he could just go out and, and perform. And it wasn't until afterwards when we realized the seriousness of the injury that, um, you know, the pain came. And so it was the, the belief or the idea that he was injured and then his attention to that injury amplified his pain. I would imagine that's like you're referring to that in some way with where our attention is and our beliefs on pain can amplify it. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yes. So focusing on pain and thinking about pain amplifies pain. We know that's true. And distracting away from it or taking your attention away from it will lower pain volume. But you're also pointing out this other thing that beliefs change pain too. And it's interesting when we hear placebo effect, like, you know, as you know, in your PhD program, you read a million research papers and medical journals. And I remember reading like, oh, it's just the placebo. It's just placebo effect. And you sort of dismiss it. You're taught that the placebo effect sort of means nothing. It's equivalent with nothing. Like if something's just placebo, in fact, if a medication is no better than placebo, it's discarded as useless. Um, here's the funny thing about placebo. I'm gonna say what placebo actually means. Placebo means I'm gonna give you a sugar pill and I'm gonna tell you that this inert inactive substance is going to cure you of your depression, cure you of your pain, and you actually get better. So what placebo actually is, is self-healing. That's actually what placebo is. And what we study and all these studies show, like there's a guy at Harvard, Ted Katchuk, who's doing all this research on placebo. What we know is that, for example, if you give someone a sugar pill, which we can all agree is not an active medication and say, this is gonna make your pain go away. In response to that, the brain releases endogenous naturally made Opioids, they're called endorphins. You've all heard of them. If you ever get a runner's high after you go for a run, those are because your brain makes natural opioids called endorphins. And the same is true, by the way, for Parkinson's disease. If you give someone a sugar pill and say, this is gonna help your symptoms, Parkinsonian symptoms also remit. So what, what that means, you guys, is that there's a self-healing mechanism that we all have in our bodies that can change our health. Like, why aren't we studying the shit out of that? Why aren't we throwing all of our money at that? Why are we giving, why are we over-medicating people with pain and children with pain? And why are we throwing pills at it? I mean, it, the answer is because it's profitable. But in my mind, that's the thing we should be throwing our money at. So when it comes to a physical injury, let's say you had a, a knee surgery or you're recovering from something of that nature, part of me feels like you need to feel that pain in order to recover. Because if you're masking it, if there is a brain component to it, 
where you're naturally releasing and healing yourself, what happens when we mask that pain? When you say mask the pain, do you mean like lowering pain volume or taking medications? Taking to medications the pain? for the pain to go away when you're in recovery. Yeah. So I guess there's pros and cons. Like I, I just want to be clear, like thank God for pain medications after surgery. I am not saying that people should suffer <laughs> in excruciating pain and not take pain meds. Like yeah. I have taken pain meds after surgeries and I'm all about them. What research shows is that pain medications do not work for chronic pain and chronic pain is pain that lasts three months or longer. Okay. So there's a lot of people with a lot of long-term conditions who have been on a lifetime of medications. And what research shows, I'm just, I am just a nerd who diligently, you know, barfs up everything I've ever read. So what science says is that long-term pain medications are not effective for chronic pain, but for short-term acute pain post-surgery, I humbly submit it's absolutely appropriate to take pain medications. What we don't want is for someone to take so much medication that they can't feel their leg anymore. So to your, if your leg is telling you not to walk after surgery, you need to listen to that message, right? Yes. So for acute pain, for acute pain, the messages our bodies give us are, are usually telling us that there's something wrong. With chronic pain, it's a different animal. And, and can I tell you the signs of chronic pain? I think it will be useful for listeners. Please. It's different than acute pain. So acute pain we've said is short term. So post-surgical pain, the pain of childbirth or an injury that lasts three months less. Chronic pain, it turns out, is a totally different animal. And science says that chronic pain is actually a disease of the brain. So what happens with chronic pain is that your brain gets more sensitive over time. So I'm, I want to explain this concept. So I'm going to ask you guys to think of anything you practiced over time and got good at. So any skill, you were bad at it, you practiced it, and you got good at it. I want to hear from both of you. Well, Mine you're going to have piano. to talk to Sean because I'm pretty good at everything. <laughs> Born kidding. good at everything. I, I would have to say a sport. Um, any, any sports. So let's just say Great. baseball. Yeah. I have Great. to go with, the, go with the same thing. I played small college football, so I'll, I'll go there. Perfect. Great. So I'm going to say this back to you in the nerdy way. The pathways in your brain are like the muscles in your body. The more you use them, the bigger and stronger they get. So the more you use the baseball pathway in your brain, the bigger and stronger the baseball pathway gets so that over time you're better and better at baseball, because baseball, of course, requires a lot of different knowledge and coordination and planning. The same is true with pain. When you inadvertently, totally accidentally practice pain for weeks and months and years, the pain pathway in the brain becomes really big and strong. And when that happens, we say that your brain has become sensitive to pain. And I spend a lot of time thinking about that word sensitive. What that means is like if a dog walked into this room right now, it would sniff around and it would pick up scents that you and I cannot detect because they have a very sensitive sense of smell. So the sense, the smell pathway in the dog's brain is very large. That's what happens also when we have chronic pain. We've been accidentally practicing pain for so long that the pain pathway in the brain gets big and strong. So what I mean by that is small bits of sensory input from the body are amplified by a sensitive brain telling you that there's extreme danger even in the absence of danger. So with my fibromyalgia patients, I will ask, is going to a picnic with your friends dangerous to your body? 
because we know that's what the pain system is, right? It's to detect danger. And we can all agree it's not dangerous, but it might be very painful. And in my mind, that's a really good example of how the pain system can become very sensitive and therefore not a good danger detector. And that's what we know about chronic pain. Um, so I know that was a long way of answering your question, but I hope- No, I you made it. me think of something else. Like how is this related to pain tolerance? Say what you mean by that. Um, I was going to ask you to describe pain tolerance, but um, I would say like <laughs> when, a, when a woman is in labor, which is probably one of the most painful things, they've experienced that and maybe they're more capable of handling some type of physical pain from there on after because nothing really compares to what they've already experienced. So I would say I have a very high tolerance to pain. I could, something can hurt me and, and it doesn't really affect me that much, but others may be different. So the interesting thing about pain tolerance is that like everything else, it's just individualized and everybody has a different pain tolerance. And also pain tolerance can change over one's lifetime with experience and time. So it's sort of like everyone just has a different number, their own unique number. So is it learned? That brain um, pain connection? It's it's both. It's one of those things where, you know, everything is genes plus environment, right? So you can be born with a certain sensitivity, like some people are born very sensitive. Mm -hmm. Some people are born less sensitive. So there's like your innate sensitivity to pain plus lived experience, like the lifetime of environmental experiences that shape your brain. And, you know, that's true with pain. And that's true with all sorts of things to do with health. Yeah, culture is interesting, because our father was a college football player and he would tell stories like his pinky was on the other side of his hand and he played the rest of the game. And so you begin to like learn this idea of being hurt versus being injured. Yeah. And if you're hurt, you can still perform, you still play. And so with, with males, it's associated with like toughness. And so it's communicated to you that pain is something you tolerate in order to finish the task. Maybe that's a middle-class um, working kind of uh, mentality as well. Like you always finish the job or, you know, you see this in the military too. You do what you need to do to finish the mission. There's a lot of the cultural ideas around pain that I think in, influence how your pain is interpreted. Yeah, that's always true. Yeah, I would, um, I would just, mimic that. I, I can't tell you how many times I heard the response to, you know, being hurt or injured as you're fine, it's all in your head that's a very common thing that was said the entire time we were growing up. That's our culture. Yeah. It is our culture and it's unfortunate because pain is never all in your head. I mean, it is in your brain, but it's never all in your head. And people with pain are often stigmatized and given that message that it's just psychological and they need to suck it up or tough it out or, you know, fight through the pain. And um, I don't quite think that that's even remotely true. Like, you know, the, of course, there are, resilience is important. Of course, that's true. And it takes a lot of strength to live with chronic pain. So um, this messaging that it's all in your head is actually really damaging. And it's damaging also to my profession. Again, like no one wants to see a psychologist for pain. I am the used car salesman of pain medicine. Like I have to, I have to convince everybody why what I do is both useful and important and often critical. UCSF and Stanford send me the patients that aren't getting better, you know, like, they, they recently sent me a child who was a double hand amputee who had phantom limb pain and like his pain is gone and I'm not a magician. It's just, it's, it's using science to change pain mm. and, and to change pain, you have to change the brain. 
So it's not all in your head, but if we're not targeting the brain and we're not targeting emotions and we're not targeting cognitive factors, we're not actually targeting pain. So I definitely have a question about this. You brought up fibromyalgia. This is a condition where our medical community, physicians will refer this client to a psychologist as if it is depression, right? It's unexplained pain from the medical world and they're being treated as if they're depressed and then I'll do my evaluation. And to me, it's like, well, you're depressed because you have pain. Uh, it's, you know, it's not like you were depressed, then you developed pain. Can you try to help us with the mystery of fibromyalgia? And maybe we can educate other medical professionals out there. Yeah, I like, I feel so frustrated by how pain is mistreated and misunderstood. Um, fibromyalgia is a condition that is ca caused by central sensitization. And central sensitization is this thing that I just described to you, which is the brain becomes more sensitive over time. And also pain is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. It's not a thing where either depression causes pain or pain causes depression. Emotions always influence pain pain always influences emotions. There's just no way around it, right? Like when you live with pain day in and day out, of course you're stressed. Of course you're anxious. Of course you're sad. Like th that's a trauma. So many things are taken away from you when you live with chronic pain day in and day out. So, so I, I just want to give a metaphor that I think will help explain this phenomenon. Um, and this is for everyone out there who's ever had pain of the emotional or physical kind. Um, so I want you to imagine in your central nervous system, you have what I'm going to call a pain dial and it operates like the volume knob on your car stereo. And you can turn pain volume up and you can turn pain volume down and lots of things do that. Three things in particular change pain volume. One is stress and anxiety changes the pain we feel. This is just neuroscience. Mood and emotions also change pain volume and attention and cognitive factors. That's thing three. And there's many other things too that change pain volume, but there's a reason I'm just naming these three for now. So here's how this works. When stress and anxiety are high and your body and your muscles are tense and tight and your thoughts are worried, your brain amplifies pain volume. So pain physically feels worse during times of stress and anxiety, like say during a pandemic or during a divorce or some other horrible life stressor. Thing two, we said mood and emotions. Science says that when our emotions are negative, we're sad, we're depressed, we're grieving, we're furious, we're angry, our limbic system, the emotion center in our brain, sends a message to the pain dial amplifying pain volume. So negative emotions like depression amplify pain. Thing three, we said attention and cognitive factors. Turns out that when you are home in bed, thinking about your pain and focusing on your pain, your prefrontal cortex in your brain sends a message to the pain dial amplifying pain volume. So pain feels worse when you're focusing on it and when you're thinking about it. We all know that this is true, but here's the important news and the good news. The opposite is also true. The opposite is also true. So when stress and anxiety are low, your muscles are relaxed, you're thinking calm thoughts, your brain will lower pain volume. There's a reason that really good high quality pain management programs will recommend 
guided audio relaxation, diaphragmatic breathing, even though it's very annoying and people think it's silly and mindfulness to lower pain volume. We know that's a thing that works. And by the way, muscle relaxants are also prescribed for pain for a reason. So that's thing one. Thing two, we set our emotions and mood back to your fibromyalgia depression question. It turns out science says when emotions are positive, we're happy, we're joyful, we're grateful, we're engaged in pleasurable activities. Our limbic system, our brain's emotion center will lower pain volume. And thing three we said is attention. So when we are distracted, I will ask my patients sometimes, tell me about a time you were so absorbed in some activity, you briefly forgot about your pain. And usually people can give me a thing and that's not magic. That's just your brain's pain dial. Your brain turns down pain volume when you're distracted and not thinking about your pain. So all the ingredients matter all the time, both in pain production and in pain reduction. So I'm thinking about something here because I am so grateful to have somebody of your quality right now because I need some, some validation or actually the fact that you are an Ivy League graduate, you're a academic, you're a leading global pain expert, you lecture at Stanford. I think you're uniquely qualified to answer this question. But no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> I actually sometimes question whether I'm crazy because I will post on Twitter things like the value of nutrition, activity, sun exposure, social engagement, um, purpose, mindfulness, attention, things around sleep, things around lifestyle that I think are so critical to our mental health. And I will get lambasted on there as if I am the devil who somehow is making statements that are so invalidating to a person's experience. And it's really difficult to read because it's almost like they're and these things can only be said on, on Twitter, that I'm some quack who doesn't know any better. Now, listen, you're a lot smarter than I am. So having you on Doubt here it. and being able to talk on this subject, um, am I crazy for thinking this stuff? No, um, no. Depression and anxiety are also biopsychosocial recipes. And we all already, everyone already knows that that's true. Of course, there's biological components to anxiety and depression. Of course there are. And also... This, you're just, you are citing science. Science says that anxiety is biopsychosocial, that depression is biopsychosocial, that yes, there are biological components and also there's cognitive and emotional and behavioral and social and environmental factors or ingredients also. And if you're not targeting all of them, you're not targeting mental health. So I think what's happening is that, um, you're pushing on a hot button and so am I, and, and we both know it and that's why we're friends. But, but our, our community, our health community has been hijacked by this message that billions of dollars by big pharma have been funneled towards to convince all of us that health is just a biological biomedical problem. It's not true. It's never been true. Yeah. Of course it's not. If you've ever, if, I mean, I keep going back to the pandemic because all of us experience some version of like, you know, depression or anxiety or some version of low, low mood or because it was an environmental trigger and it didn't change your biology. So 
not every treatment is a pill, whether it's for pain or anxiety or depression, there's more than that out there. And if you want to actually treat anxiety, if you want to actually treat depression, if you want to actually treat pain, you have to look outside the biological biomedical bubble. That alone is not sufficient. So people will say, man, my meds aren't working. Like, so you, we hear this from people all the time. Uh, there's a reason for that. Now, I think you and I also have to be careful to say, and let me speak for myself. I have to be careful to say, I am not anti-medication. Everyone should do what's good for them. Like people will say to me, no, but this depression medication saved my life. I was suicidal and now I'm not. I am all about whatever works. If that's what works for you, great. I am not telling anybody to go off their meds. I am just like you are doing, reciting the science. Science says that neither depression nor anxiety nor pain are purely biological. So what you are doing, which is why I retweet you all the time, you are saying there's a bigger recipe here. We've all lost the big picture. We've all been brainwashed and sold this bullshit lie that everything is just biology and that the cure is a pill. And science says that is not true. That isn't true. So we do need to take care of lifestyle. We do need to move our bodies. We do need to take care of nutrition. We do need sunlight. Sunlight is medicine. We do need to take care of our social health. If you're being abused, if you're in toxic family relationships, if you're getting the silent treatment, you bet your ass you're going to be anxious and depressed. And a medication is not going to cure that problem. So it's, it's always a bigger, bigger picture problem in my mind with a bigger picture solution. What can you tell us about gut health? I love talking about gut health. Oh, great. <laughs> um, so a um, couple things about gut health. Again, I think I mentioned this before. Stomach aches are one of the number one signs of stress and anxiety, not just in kids, but in adults too. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. So everyone here has heard of serotonin, which is a chemical, brain chemical, that's been implicated in mood and in appetite and um, all sorts of things. And it's the number one target for the depression and anxiety medications, right? Like SSRIs are the number one medication for anxiety and depression. And pain, okay. they give it for pain too. I, I, I got to check in with you there. Yeah. Uh, they do sometimes, not that much. Okay. Sometimes, sometimes. I mean, there are other psych meds that are used for pain. Um, occasionally SSRIs. Um, guess which part of the body has the most serotonin? The gut. Yeah. <laughs> 90, 90%. Yep. Gentlemen, 90% of the body's serotonin is in your gut. Because your gut is actually one of your body's primary emotion centers. Mm -hmm. Your gut. It's why you have a gut feeling and a gut instinct. It's why watching the news makes you feel sick to your stomach. Right? It's why you get butterflies in your stomach when you're talking to someone that you're nervous to talk to. It's why you throw up or get the runs before like a big talk at work or your gut is one of your body's primary emotion centers. And this is also a known entity. Like nothing I'm saying is revolutionary, but like for some reason, the way we talk about it is just not standard and it should be. So there's this system, anyone with stomach aches, or any kind of stomach sy symptoms should go and look up. It's called your enteric nervous system. E-N-T-E-R-I-C, enteric nervous system. Well-known thing. It's the bundle of neurons connecting your brain and your gut. Because dun da 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 surprising to no one, they're connected 100% of the time. And your enteric nervous system is one of these systems in your body that regulates stress 
and motility, like when you go to the bathroom and when you feel nauseous. And um, it's related to, to gut health and emotional health all the time. So um, I see a lot of stomach aches, chronic stomach aches in my practice. And I always ask my patients, hey, has anyone ever told you about your enteric nervous system? Guess how many people have said yes? <laughs> None. <laughs> no, zero. No, I'm like, have any of your GI doctors told you that the majority of your serotonin lives in your gut and that your gut is one of your body's primary emotion centers? No, the answer is no. So stress and anxiety normally and naturally leads to GI dysfunction and abdominal pain. And I want to, again, be clear. I am not saying that there can't be other things wrong with your stomach. Like, of course there can be. But in my mind, what I was taught is when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. Have you heard that phrase? <laughs> what it means is when you see a symptom, you don't go looking for the least likely alternative, you for the most likely alternative. So when I see patients with stomach aches who are experiencing a lot of significant stress, and we have a million reasons, all of us to be stressed out right now, we can go down the rabbit hole with that one. It's always my first line of thinking, like, let's at least talk about that. Let's think about how are we managing stress and anxiety? What are the ingredients in your life that might be amplifying stress and anxiety that might be contributing to stomach aches or nausea or diarrhea or whatever, gas or whatever symptoms I'm seeing? So it seems important to me to always talk about health in this holistic framework. Like all the things are connected. Your brain is connected to your body 100% of the time. Yeah. So if it's a if, if it's quacking, it's probably a duck. Oh, geez. For, exactly. For, the, for those who've listened to exactly. the previous episode. Sorry, Sean. Exactly. Yeah, one of my challenges exactly. in the modern day pharmaceutically driven healthcare system is this idea of informed consent. I do respect everyone's individual right to make any decisions for their body that they choose. That's something that I powerfully believe in, ethically believe in. But if they're not provided all the information and this idea that, uh, you know, an antidepressant may be something that someone believes is life-saving and everything i know about the science is that belief is probably what makes it life-saving and if we're going to talk about gut health when when a drug destroys or damages gut microbiome we have to consider the long-term health implications of taking that drug and be aware of what are alternative treatments that might be a little bit more difficult to implement. It won't give you the quick response that some drug will provide you, but it gives you some long-term uh, positive outcomes and you're moving in a direction to enhance your life. And that's what I would imagine working with you and having an understanding of all these various strategies that a person can be able to implement into their life to, to live well. I think it's harder but it's certainly much more beneficial. Now, one of the things that I thought was fascinating in the way that you talk about this is this idea of a, of a recipe. And I love that uh, the, the metaphors that you use and different flexibility. Can you talk a little bit about that pain recipe? Totally. I also want to say that you made my head explode a little bit because I think about informed consent all the time also, and you're 100% right. We do not tell our patients about what is actually known about the science of antidepressant. We don't, we do not tell our patients and the same with pain medications. You know, we have these little handouts with like the fine, 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 fine print, but we do not tell people living with, we do not tell people period about the data or the science, which is why your voice is so important. 
Um, so this concept of a pain recipe, I'm really glad you like it. The concept of a pain recipe is just this. Um, just as there's a recipe for brownies, there is also a recipe for pain. So everyone knows if you want brownies that taste delicious, you have to take certain ingredients in a certain order and bake them at a certain temperature in a certain receptacle of a certain size for a certain amount of time. And otherwise you're not gonna get the outcome that you want. And it turns out that the same is true with pain. And by the way, the same is true with anxiety and the same is true with depression. There is always a biopsychosocial recipe for health. So some ingredients, for example, that might go into a high pain recipe, which always seems to be easier understandably for people than a low pain recipe. So I ask people, let's think about some factors that go into a really bad high pain day for you. So, you know, again, I mentioned I've had chronic pain on and off my whole life. So a bad pain day, and you know, my patients will echo this too, might include not moving my body and sitting in my work chair all day. So not exercising, not going outside, eating a crappy diet, like just subsisting on potato chips, um, really poor sleep, lots of conflict in my personal relationships. Um, I don't know, what are other things that would go into a high pain recipe? You guys, do you guys have high pain recipes that you have noticed? It could be muscle overuse. It could be overusing your body. Um, right. You get the general gist. Yeah. So that's Sleep a high pain recipe. Things, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so the cool thing about a pain recipe is that once we know the high pain recipe or the biopsychosocial ingredients that go into creating a really crappy pain day, all we have to do when I like writing things out, we're very visual human beings. Once you see the high pain recipe, you can look at what we think the low pain re recipe might be and also how we might get there. So making sure we're having good sleep means high quality sleep hygiene. It means making sure I'm taking breaks throughout the day to stand and stretch and walk. It's protecting time to go outside. It's making sure I'm not isolated and spending time with my community. It's making sure I'm going to PT and OT and self-care and good nutrition. So, so that is a low pain recipe and I just wanna say, because I know your audience, because again, I follow you on Twitter. There is also a high, there's a recipe for high anxiety and there's a recipe for low anxiety. And I bet we could make that together if we sat down together and thought about what's a high anxiety recipe? Let, I want the three of us to brainstorm that. So I'll say for me, watching the news is an ingredient for me in my high stress anxiety recipe. Going Anybody on else? <laughs> Going on Twitter. Totally, social media, social media. is an ingredient. Totally. For me, not ex been, not exercising. Yeah. Or, or work Go deadlines ahead. that keep you at yeah. your desk. Yeah. Over, definitely yeah. overworking. Yeah. yeah. Overworking. C too much caffeine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> not exercising. Not like exercising, I know that definitely. I, right. I feel worse on days. So, so there's always, there's always a biopsychosocial recipe for anxiety. And there is always a biopsychosocial recipe for low anxiety and feeling calm and relaxed. So I'm just hyper aware of my recipes all the time. So I don't care how dorky this sounds. I build into my life walking outside in the sun every day because I know that's gonna help my pain, my emotional and physical pain. I know it's gonna help my body. I also build in, I listen to guided med meditation and mindfulness. I, I don't care how dumb that sounds. It really helps me, it grounds me, it relaxes me. I do the body scan. 
so rad. Um, I'm always scheduling social time with people I care about because I feel more relaxed when I have social support. There's a lot of data and science behind the role of social medicine. So, so there's a lot of different ingredients that go into any sort of high pain or high anxiety or high depression recipe. And there's always a lot of ingredients that go into a low pain, low depression, low anxiety recipe. And again, this goes back to all of us at the very beginning of this thing saying, health is biopsychosocial. Health is not biological. That's humans are more complicated than that. We're not just cells. That's we are more than that. We're experiences and, you know, we're environment. We're, we're all of these different factors working together in any given moment. Yeah, we have a uh, PTSD treatment center here where we provide care for those who have are survivors of trauma and we provide cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure therapy, and just integrated cognitive behavioral treatments for trauma. But one of the things that is, you know, very clear, we need to be able to continue to advance the science in this area for those who've experienced trauma. And one of the things that we certainly notice is that those who have under, who've, who've been exposed to trauma, have PTSD symptoms, seem much more vulnerable or sensitive to pain in other areas of their life. Is there science behind this? Can you tell our audience a little bit about what this might look like and how this can be integrated in a treatment plan? I am so fascinated by the relationship between trauma and pain because they co-occur up to 80% of the time. Comorbidity rates between trauma and chronic pain are up to 80% in the literature. It's wild. And yes, there is science, and I can do my best to explain why. When you experience a trauma, something terrible has happened to you. And our brains are plastic. We've all heard of neuroplasticity, which means the brain morphs and adapts and changes over time. It's the coolest instrument in the body. The brain changes and adapts over time. So when something really terrible happens, your brain is like, oh, man. I let this really bad thing happen and I have to protect this body and make sure that a bad thing doesn't happen again. So it becomes hypersensitive. Back to that word sensitive, which I'm always thinking about when I'm thinking about pain. And again, sensitive means small bits of information are interpreted by a sensitive brain as bigger and louder. So one of the primary symptoms of trauma and PTSD is called hypervigilance. So we see an exaggerated startle response. So if someone's been traumatized and you tap them on the shoulder, they might jump bodily out of their chair, right? They have nothing dangerous has happened. A tap on the shoulder, not dangerous, but the response is exaggerated. Why? The brain, having been through trauma, is now extra sensitive. So small bits of sensory input are now exaggerated and amplified. So I worked with veterans at the San Diego Veterans Center, Vet Hospital in San Diego. And what these guys would, and women would often tell me is, there's a lot of fireworks in San Diego. And when the fireworks would go off, they would hit the ground just without thinking about it. Of course, again, their brains were just trying to protect them. These were men and women who had been through Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, of course, the, those loud noises in Iraq and Afghanistan meant you were gonna die. So their sensitive brains, even though they know logically they're in San Diego, they're very safe, those are just fireworks, inevitably they hit the floor. Now, when a brain is sensitive after a trauma, it scans not only your external environment, but also your internal environment also. 
your sensitive brain is scanning everything inside of you. Is something bad happening? What about here? What about there? What about that? Is that dangerous? And it's amplifying sensory messages. So when you have been through a trauma, your very lovely, beautiful brain is simply trying to protect you by amplifying danger messages from your body that are not dangerous. And again, that's what chronic pain is. Chronic pain is a brain that has become extra sensitive over time. Even in the absence of danger, it's gonna give you a danger message. So it's very important when treating chronic pain, again, to treat trauma. If we're not treating trauma, we're not treating the brain, we're not actually treating pain. Why does my brain make me feel something when I see another person in a painful situation? Such a good question. Um, our brains have these really cool things in them called mirror neurons. And yeah, mirror neurons are so cool. So um, I'm just going to say briefly what those are. Neurons are brain cells that live in the brain. And um, it's adaptive for human beings to reflect the experiences of people around us. So for example, back in the day when we were hunters out on the plains, you know, hunting food, um, if a lion was approaching and everyone around you had a terrified face on screaming and running and you just stood there and you were like, hmm, I wonder what's going on, you would be the one eaten by the lion. So mirror neurons have evolved over time so that we start feeling other people's emotions, which can be very, very annoying. Like, I don't always want to feel everybody else's emotions. I happen to have a very sensitive brain and it seems to feel everyone's emotions all the time. It's very annoying. But mirror neurons are adaptive. Again, if there's an emergency and you don't feel your fight or flight system kick in, you're not going to run for your life and you're going to get eaten. So mirror neurons ultimately are adaptive, um, but they aren't always useful or helpful because, because as you know, if you see someone else suffering and you feel they're suffering, it's not always particularly useful or adaptive for you. But that is why it's happening. Is that why we feel it in our gut or down towards our groin sometimes? Yeah, well, that goes back to the enteric nervous system, that gut-brain connection where, right, where there's more serotonin in your gut than there, than there is in your brain, and your gut is one of your primary emotion centers. So, yeah, we, we have a queasy stomach, or, you know, we get a stomach ache when we're upset. I have to get into nutrition and diet before we let you go. I'm really appreciative of your time. I'm really yeah. become more focused in the importance of lifestyle and nutritional medicine. I think nutritional yeah. psychology and metabolic health are the next kind of wave of, of very important science to help people live better. But as far, are you aware of any specific diets or nutritional plans that are very useful for people who are suffering from chronic pain? Yeah, so um, as we talk through all this stuff, I, I'm just always mindful of like, I just, I don't want us to overemphasize any one piece of the recipe. Like nutrition, of course, is important in pain and health, but it's not the only thing, you know? And so yes, a good nutritious diet for pain and for health in general is like not a lot of processed foods, not, not too much sugar. We want to actually stay away from alcohol and substances, ironically. Um, and you want to eat whole foods, lots of grains. I mean, I'm not saying anything that everyone doesn't already know, like grains, fruits, vegetables, um, not a lot of processed crap, not a lot of alcohol. That's just like the general basic wisdom when it comes to pain management. 
Yeah, and that really needs to be targeted. If that's not targeted in, yeah. in a treatment, that could be a major piece that's missing. Oh, you have no idea. I get patients who come to me and I ask them, I always ask about nutrition because of course that's part of our pain recipe. And some of them are on white food diets, I like to call them. <sighs> like, oh dude, they will eat pizza and chips and bread and cheese, but like they just don't like fruits or vegetables. And I'm like, uh, I understand. And also if you want your body and brain to heal, you, you need to be providing your body with the fuel to allow it to heal. So yes, I couldn't agree more. And that's always an ingredient in a pain recipe. Like what you put into your body is what you get out of your body. So I, I do like to kind of wrap things up. I, I know that one of the things I love about your website is that you identify yourself as a disruptor. And uh, I mean, that, that's a really cool, cool word. Um, so first I want to like check in with you and like what you me meant by that, by identifying yourself as a disruptor. I'm told that that word is now dated and like, you're not supposed to be a disruptor anymore because it's been used for a decade and everyone's tired of it. But um, what I'm doing is very different than what everyone else is doing when it comes to the conversation about pain. We have this opioid epidemic that is still going on and it exploded during the pandemic. Surprising to no one. Now that we know about the pain dial, chronic pain was amplified and also people were anxious and depressed and also people were turning to substances and also we were isolated and lonely and it was literally a recipe for pain amplification and opioid overdoses during the pandemic were higher than they've ever been. And yes, of course, that was due to illicit substance use and also prescription opioids. So, so um, by disrupting pain medicine, what I mean is I'm trying to start this conversation where we're reconnecting brain with body, where we're focusing as much on emotional health as we are on physical health, where we reintegrate and destigmatize psychology in the treatment of pain, where we talk about pain treatment, not just as a pills and procedures thing, but as an integrated whole body, whole person thing. And we talk about and normalize going to therapy and treating trauma and, and making sure that anxiety and depression also have like this low pain, low anxiety, low depression recipe that consists of targeting lifestyle and social health and physical health and movement and nutrition and all of these things that we're talking about. So I am swimming upstream. I am fighting an uphill battle. Big pharma and big healthcare do not agree with me. And they have billions of dollars to promote the idea that pain is a biological problem that requires a biological solution, which is why I seek out other disruptors like you and why I write books like the pain management workbook. Because again, I want to put science into the hands of the people. Science is not just for nerds who read, sit around reading neuroscience journals. Science belongs to all of us. And I want everyone to know the science of pain because no one is going to get well until they understand what pain is. We cannot treat a thing that we do not understand. And I am tired of the misinformation and I am tired of money running medicine. So that's why the pain management workbook exists. That's why I do podcasts like this. And, and I am grateful to you for having me on. <laughs> Rachel, where can people find you? <laughs> um, I am on Twitter also. I'm at Dr. Zafnis. Um, I've sort of been building this social media presence in order to change the conversation about pain. I'm also on Instagram. I'm at the real docs off. I picked that originally as a joke. <laughs> I thought it was funny because everyone's the real this and the real that. 
So I'm at the real docs off on Instagram. You mentioned I have a website. It's zoffness.com, just my last name. And I've been putting together free resources for 10 years. So if people want to go learn about pain or you want recommendations for books or free websites or guided audio for pain or links to journal articles that prove that what I'm saying is true, please go look. Again, zoffness.com, just my last name. There's a resources page. There's more information on there than you've ever wanted. And also the pain management workbook is it's like 20 bucks. It's on Amazon. Or if you hate Amazon and think Bezos is a schmuck, it's also on the New Harbinger website. New Harbinger is my lovely publisher, so you can get it either place. And this is for our listeners in the show summary right now. You can just open up, scroll down. Links to all those destinations can be found there. You're inspirational. Breath of fresh air. I, I feel invigorated after speaking to people like you. This is why I got into this field, and I know the Radically Genuine podcast has to continue to move into directions where we provide solutions. I know that I'm a disruptor in the way that I'm bringing a lot of attention to the harms that are created by the psychiatric treatment, the ideas, the DSM, a lot of things that I'm passionate about, but I'm more passionate about creating a life of value and purpose, one that's full of love and energy and engagement. Life is about creating new experiences and you have a recipe for that and you have a lot to say. And I really encourage all the listeners to check her out. She is an absolute star. Dr. Zoffness, we are so appreciative of having you on today and I wish you the best moving forward. Thanks. I'm going to keep following you and retweeting you. So just keep being loud. Don't, doesn't matter what people say. Please just keep being loud. It's important. I appreciate that. Thank you. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.